the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's a brand new week. Thanks for tuning in to AM630, The Word. It's 4 o'clock, and so that means we're ready for your phone calls and your Bible questions. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and all you have to do is call us with your question. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. One button, hit call now, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Hope and pray you had a great day in church yesterday. We did, and some people gave their heart to Jesus, and uh, Communion Sunday's always thrilling. Um, pray that God used you to minister to somebody who needed it. Because it's Monday here at Calvary Chapel, we have our men's and women's um, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. Child care is provided. Uh, the ladies tonight will be going through sort of their pastor's wives retreat debrief. Um, the next two Mondays tonight and next week, uh, the pastor's wives will be sharing what the Lord spoke to them. And and uh, I know they had a blast. I know that they were all glad that they went. So um, that will be tonight rather than a typical Bible study, again, beginning at 7 o'clock. Let me get to questions because we've got some questions that have been sent in and we'd love to have your phone calls. Our first question comes today anonymously from our mobile app. Does a man need to be married before becoming a pastor? Anonymous, the answer is no. Um, There's no requirement to be married to be a pastor. You know, when I got this question today, I was thinking, or actually trying to think of pastors that I knew that were unmarried. And honestly, I only know one. Now, I don't get out much, so my, my experience is limited. But I only know one, a Calvary Chapel pastor who is unmarried. Uh, and, and, and the last time I spoke with him, he felt like that was his calling. But uh, no, you do not have to be married before becoming a pastor. Uh, the Apostle Paul himself was unmarried uh, at the time of his calling. Or right after his calling, he, he, uh, we speculate that he was married at one time. Uh, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. Um, but probably in his conversion, lost his family. And the rest of his life, he spent single, committed only to Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons that he could write in his letter to the Corinthians that if a man stays single, he can devote all of his energy. It's the better of, of the two options. But certainly Paul recognized that it wasn't for everybody. Now let me kind of chime in on this from my perspective as well. Um, I couldn't do what I do without Paula. 
I just couldn't do it. She is my partner in every way you can imagine in this ministry. And when God said it's not good for man to be alone, we're not just talking about because of physical things. Um, it's just not good. Paula is sort of a check and balance for me. She knows me better than anybody else. Um, she makes sure things that I might overlook are taken care of. But at the same time, because I know her heart is just for Jesus and then secondarily just for me, I can literally trust her with anything and everything. And that's why as we minister together, I can't imagine doing this without her. So uh, a wife, I think, is a good thing, even a necessary thing. But biblically, it isn't a requirement um, before becoming a pastor. Helpful, but not a requirement. So I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question. This one uh, also uh, from our mobile app. Uh, anonymously also when Jacob wrestled the angel refusing to let go until he received his blessing was the angel Jesus I'm unsure but I've heard from commentaries that the angel was Jesus there's no guessing anonymous the angel was Jesus this for me personally is my signature chapter in the Bible Genesis chapter 32 um, Jacob's holding on to Jesus after the wrestling match saying, I will not let go until you bless me. Uh, you may have heard me say this on this program before, but uh, I say that every single day. Uh, from the time I got saved and read Genesis 32, and like a lot of people, I started reading in Genesis. When I got there, it just resonated so deeply in my heart that, that as Jacob was wrestling with Jesus, Jesus holding on to him, Jacob tried to get away from him all night long. And finally, the Lord said, I will not contend with man's spirit forever. And, and he, he just let go. But before he let go, he touched Jacob's hip. And Jacob, of course, was crippled. He walked with a limp the rest of his life because of that power. And when Jacob understood for the very first time the power that he was wrestling to get away from, well, that was the moment when his life changed. And that's when he grabbed onto Jesus. He actually won the wrestling match, Jacob did, by losing it. By losing it, trying to get away all night. Jesus finally stopped holding on to him, and he held on to Jesus for dear life. I will not let go until you bless me. And Anonymous, without any question at all, this was Jesus. And this is a, a practice not only that I do, but I think everybody should do every day. It's, it's one of those reminders that I can do nothing apart from Christ. And I, I need to be with him all day, every day. I need to be aware of my limitations, my deficiencies. I need to be aware that, that, that if I'm not holding on to him, then I'm going to mess up. I'm going to find trouble and difficulty. So clearly it was Jesus. God was in this place. The same thing is true in the chapter of Jacob's ladder prior to this. But this is when Jacob, finally afraid enough, desperate enough, waiting for Esau, thinking Esau is going to attack. This was a place where he realized for the first time that he really needed help. So it was Jesus. It's not an angel. It's the definite article, the angel of the Lord. And they wrestled all night. It is truly anonymous a chapter that has changed and shaped my life, perhaps as no other. I, I honestly don't know uh, any other Bible passage that I use practically as much as I use this one, because as I said, this for me is an everyday thing. It's, it's my reminder, I will not let go until you bless me. You know, one of the great statements there is the expectation that God wants to bless us. And I don't mean with money. I don't mean having a trouble-free life. But I mean, bless us with his presence. And I absolutely love the fact that Jesus wants to be with me. And now I want to be with him. But more than that, I know I need to be with him. And I promise him every day, I will not let go until you bless me. So appreciate the question, Anonymous. Here's another one, this time from our email inbox. This one from Thomas. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. I have two questions, but I'll ask one today and wrestle with the other one a while longer. Now, obviously, I didn't have to read that part of the question, but you know what? This is really a good practice, not for just for Thomas, but for all of us. Before you ask questions, wrestle with them. 
wrestle with them, think about them, um, um, look up scripture. If you have a computer program, there's a, 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 a feature called the treasure of scripture knowledge. It's, it's invaluable. But really dig in before you ask the questions. Okay, off that rant. When we think of wrath, we usually picture anger and rage. And God's wrath is imagined to be the ultimate fury and rage, as well as the associated punishments. I think we're attempting to fit God into our human minds and molds. While on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Christ. Jesus cried out and asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say, why are you doing this or that to me? He asked, why have you left me alone? So I think the wrath of God is his absolute and complete absence. Hell will be torturous beyond comprehension, but the real torment will be that God will no longer be available. He will have removed his restraining hand, turned his back, and walked away forever. Uh, not a real question, but I'd like to know what you think. I love you, Pastor Ron Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. A couple of things. Um, uh, Jesus, you'll remember, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was doing two things. He was experiencing the human side of, of being left alone. I mean, imagine uh, the Father and the Son with perfect unity forever. I mean, from, from before and ever began, they always were one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, perfect unity complete and holy partnership. And so in his humanity, this was, in my opinion, Thomas, I think one of the things that was the most difficult for Jesus to deal with that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had to contemplate not being one with his Father for a moment. However long that wrath was being poured out on the cross, Jesus had never experienced that before. I think the other most difficult thing for him, Thomas, and this isn't part of your question, was that, that he who knew no sin became sin, that, that, that this horrible, filthy sin stained for that time his absolute perfection. Those are the two things, in my opinion, that Jesus could never understand. We say, well, he was God, he understands all things. How could he understand separation from his father? And how could he understand what sin coming upon him, him becoming sin, would actually be like? So having said that, um, Thomas, God's anger, his wrath, being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world is just that, it's wrath. You can read Revelation chapter 19 when we come back and God's wrath, Jesus comes back with his, uh, on his robe and thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, and his robe is dipped literally in the blood of his enemies. So God's wrath is real wrath. It's not just his absence. Not just his absence at all. The other thing I want you to remember about him quoting the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is Jesus was evangelizing. While he was on the cross and while he was suffering, Thomas, he was quoting a universally accepted messianic psalm. And that psalm was Jesus saying as he quoted it, I am the one that this psalm spoke of. And they would know it was messianic. It would further harden their hearts. It would anger them. But when Jesus cried out that psalm, Psalm 22, it was at that moment that everybody was absolutely without excuse because Jesus was witnessing, hopeful that some would hear. So it's not just his absence. It's true his absence will be literally hell. But it's wrath. Jesus spoke about hell in, in symbolic terms. He said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. The worm will not burn. In Luke chapter 16, we have the story. It's not a parable. The story of the rich man in torment. His, my tongue is on fire in this heat. So wrath is just that. It's wrath. And the one thing I think you've really got going right here, Thomas, is that wrath and pain and torment are going to be associated with the absence of God. But it's, but it's real wrath. God's angry at sin. He's not impetuous like you are or like I am, Thomas, but he's angry at sin. And I think every time we violate his word, every time we're guilty of something willfully or even 
accidentally. I think he looks and thinks this isn't the way it was supposed to be. All he ever wanted, you see, was to walk in the cool of the garden with Jesus. Day, or with, with Adam, I'm sorry, day after day. And sin made that impossible. And that's why he hates it so. So thank you, Thomas. I will look forward to the question you're wrestling with when you're finished wrestling a little bit. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Luis says, I'm confused about the role of tradition versus the Bible in terms of authority. Can you help me understand? Uh, Luis, I'm, I'm supposing that you have a Catholic background. And um, uh, that's why you're confused. Uh, the Catholic Church, and not just the Catholic Church, by the way, but, but primarily the Catholic Church, has always held that tradition was on an equal standard or equal level of authority with the Word of God. Now, why would they do that? Well, they would do that because their tradition contradicts the Word of God so often. And that's why they elevated tradition to a position they claim equal, but the truth is whenever you put anything on an equal level with the Word of God and those two things contrast, when you adopt the tradition, Louis, um, then you have elevated that tradition above the Word of God. So there is no comparison. Tradition isn't bad. I don't want to be misunderstood here. Tradition isn't bad but traditions that contradict the Bible or are antithetical to the, what the Bible teaches, those traditions are actually wicked and evil. So you don't have to be confused. It's the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. It is our manual for living. It is the way we know who God is. It's the way we know what he wants and what's expected of each and every one of us. It's how to traverse this life in the good times and in the bad times. So, Luis, there should be no confusion. Just throw tradition out. Again, there are traditions that are just fine, and we all have them. But those traditions have to be consistent with, in complete agreement with, something that's written in Scripture. Because unless that's the case, you end up like the Catholic Church, changing those traditions and changing the rules and changing what the church believes and practices with each and every new pope. We've got a new pope now who um, uh, at least started out well in terms of being accepted by Catholics. He's kind of fallen out of favor uh, more recently. Uh, but um, the truth is he, he's just changing everything. And and it, if that's the case, all of the popes that supposedly went before him, speaking ex cathedra for the the the, the, the God for God Himself, um, um, then they weren't really speaking with authority at all. So tradition is okay if it agrees with the Bible. It's not okay if it doesn't agree with the Bible. But make sure, Luis, that your authority for the way you live your life, the decision that you make is only the word, sola scriptura. In these last days, Hebrews says, God has spoken to us in his Son. And the full and complete revelation of Jesus Christ is found from Genesis to Revelation in our Bibles. So, Luis, I hope that helps. It is a really important thing to understand and decide um, how you're going to live your lives. Here is an anonymous question. <laughs> I was laughing. Uh, why does it seem like so many pastors' kids fall away from the faith? Um, let me suggest two reasons. And I'm going to do them in reverse order of, of importance, I think. Uh, I think pastors' families and their children uh, have a special demonic assignment on them. I really do. Um, I think if God can or if the devil rather can interrupt somebody's home life and cause problems at home, um, the, the enemy knows that he's going to um, um, remove any power from the ministry of that pastor. Um, 
so I, I think that's the first reason. I think there's an enemy that wants to see them destroyed. That's the second reason in terms of, of value or importance. The first, I think, is because I think the pastor's kids see the hypocrisy of the pastor. I think they see a man standing in a pulpit preaching. I think they see a man that's reaching out and helping and ministering to all kinds of other people. And too often they're neglected at home. I want you to think about something anonymous. Look in the Bible and try to find an example of a godly marriage or a godly man raising children. And they're just not there. They're just not there. Um, Priscilla and Aquila, their marriage was a godly one. And I contend that it was godly only because they were committed as partners to the ministry, the calling that God had for their lives. But while there's great instruction about how we should be fathers, good fathers, there's not any examples. Solomon, who wrote the greatest child-raising book ever in the history of the world, was a horrible father. His son was the one who separated or divided uh, literally the, 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 the two kingdoms uh, of Israel, from the north from the south. Um, David, a man after God's own heart, was a horrible father, an indulgent father. But even in the New Testament, you don't find examples of people who are great dads, save one. Philip, the evangelist, who had four daughters who were prophetesses. So I just think it's hard. I think when kids see their fathers preaching one thing and living something else, I think that duplicity is used by an enemy to, to destroy them. And I think a lot of pastors' kids just give up from the faith. Now, here's one of the things that, that provides hope, Anonymous. I've seen a lot of pastors' kids who fell away to do really, really, really bad things later come back to the faith and, and, and do it so gratefully like the prodigal son, so gratefully that they'll do anything and God then's able to use them to do marvelous things. My friend Raul Reese, who is on this radio station, um, his son, in particular Ryan, um, drug addict, always in trouble, all kinds of things. Dad was busy. Now, Raul's not a hypocrite, but Dad was busy, wasn't there. Um, Ryan's serving the Lord now um, with more zeal than his father. It took a long time, and, and, and Raul and Sharon, his wife, had given up. But God is faithful to bring those kids home. Train up a child in the way he or she should go, and in the end, they will not depart. That's a general principle. It's not a promise. But God always goes and gets them if they will be gotten. I hope that makes sense, but it is true that pastor's kids do fall away, and they fall away uh, with some frequency. So, Anonymous, I hope that helps. Let me see. We've got a message here. We've got three minutes left. We'd love some live calls. Get the week started with some calls for the second half of the program. Here is a question from Chris. Um, boy, do I want to take this question. Okay, I will. I'm not going to edit questions. Chris says, do you believe the Supreme Court will lose its influence now that a sex offender has been confirmed? Um, Chris, a couple of things. My study yesterday here at Calvary Chapel, Luke chapter 6, judge not lest you be judged. And this question smacks with your judgment, your self-righteous judgment on a man that hasn't even had a trial, a man that was accused with no corroborating evidence. The Bible says if you hear one side of the story, you think you've got the answer, but when you hear the other, well, let's just say that we're going to be really, really sorry for the things that we said and did if we only listen to one side of the story. Chris, I'm going to assume for a minute that you're a Christian. To call a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States a sex offender is the worst kind of judgment. 
Do I believe the Supreme Court will lose its influence? I don't. As long as this republic is operating the way it should be, the Supreme Court, of course, is sort of the governor of our three branches of government, keeping the others in check. And I think that with literalists, the Supreme Court will be more effective than ever. My concern here, my concern, Chris, is you being so willing to call somebody a name that you don't know, based on, I would assume, your political persuasion. That's just not the way Christians should behave. So, Chris, I'm going to ask you to really get alone with God and repent. If you'll do that, Jesus will forgive you. And maybe he'll give you his heart for both the alleged victim and the alleged perpetrator. And the only thing you'll want then is both of them in heaven. question doesn't show a good heart, Chris. We have 30 minutes left in the Monday program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love your calls. We'll see you back on the other side of the break in two minutes. to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Monday show, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Before I move on, Chris, let me say one other thing. I told you uh, my study Sunday was uh, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Last Friday, in the book of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 24, and we're in the middle of, of Paul's supposed trial when he was accused of all kinds of things. And in his defense, he said to Felix, the proconsul of, at the time, he said, moreover, these men can't prove any of the charges that you bring against me. And I want to caution all of us as believers. If you can't prove the accusations that you're wrestling with, then hold your tongue, hold your keyboards, be really, really careful as a child of God to accuse people without proof of the kind of things that we've experienced over this last couple of weeks is a grievous sin that breaks God's heart. Forget the government, forget our republic, forget our legal system based on innocent and proven guilty. I mean, all of those are, are important. But how will you explain to Jesus that you accuse somebody unfairly. What if you find out they're really innocent when we get to heaven? What would you say to Jesus? I think sometimes we've lost in our political zeal on either side of the aisle. I think we've lost our fear of God in things like this. Here is a question that came in from Wilson. He wants to know, should the Holy Spirit be singled out for worship? Um, No, Wilson, he should not be singled out for worship. No, when we worship God, we're worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But one of the ways I've always imagined the Holy Spirit, I call him the shy member of the Trinity, uh, because his mission is only to do one thing, and that's to, to testify of Jesus. His mission in life is to reveal Jesus. So if we start giving him all the attention, imagine the Holy Spirit saying, no, 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 I've come to bring attention to Jesus. When he comes, Jesus, he 
He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. When he comes, he will testify of me, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit doesn't need nor does he want any attention, so certainly we shouldn't. Now, most of the time, Wilson, and you don't give me an indication about your background, most of the time, um, worship dedicated only to the Holy Spirit comes from these um, overly charismatic churches wanting the power of God, wanting to see miracles. And even that is selfish at heart. Worship him so he'll do something spectacular for us. When in fact, deciding, consenting to live within us is pretty spectacular. It's something that he's already done. So no, there's no competition. There's no ego in heaven. There's no father looking at Jesus saying, you're getting too much attention. We're going to rein these people in. Or the the Holy Spirit saying, well, hey, what about me? I don't get any attention. Um, When you worship God, you're worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God is smiling. All three persons of the Godhead are smiling. Here is a second sort of political question. Uh, anonymously, can a person be both a Democrat and a Christian? Of course, a person can be a Democrat. Now, look, obviously, there's there's some moral issues with what the Democrats, especially now, especially now. Let me th- remind you of something, anonymous. John F. Kennedy was a Democrat, and he was a supposedly a devout Catholic. The position of the Catholic Church was anti-abortion. Compared to Democrats now, JFK would be super conservative. So obviously there's problems with the things that a Democrat would support. I was just talking to the producer about that last question. Um... Uh, during the break we were talking uh, and just thinking, you know, this whole thing with the the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh, this whole thing was not about him at all. It wasn't about alleged sexual abuse. It was about abortion. This is about a, a, a strong majority that once and for all is going to be conservative at least until we lose other justices for the next several decades. This is about overturning Roe v. Wade and the fear that the left has of that happening. And my producer and I, we looked at you and said, you know, all of this because they want to kill babies. So yes, that's problematic. And as awful as that is, there's a whole bunch of Republicans who are anti-abortion who live in habitual sin against God. Why isn't that problematic? So yes, a person can be a Democrat. And by the way, when we start thinking that Jesus is aligned with a particular political party, we are so disrespecting him. We're reducing him to nothing more than a, a, a political puppet forgetting that he's almighty God. So yes, a person can be a Democrat and a Christian. Believe it or not, anonymous, a person can be a Republican and a Christian. I think the problem comes in when we put our political beliefs ahead of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, no doubt there are problems with things that they believe. But yes, they can be saved. Here is our next question from Faith. Faith says, why didn't God tell us everything in the Bible? It would have made it much easier to follow Jesus. Well, Faith, the Bible's job was never to tell us everything. The Bible's job was to tell us what we need to know. The Bible declares Jesus Christ, that first and foremost, is who we need to know. The Bible is enough to tell us how to find, to seek and find God's will. 
The Bible gives us instructions in every area of life, either specifically or in principle. But it wasn't God's job to tell us everything. I mean, we can go all the way back to the begots in the, in the genealogies. There are gaps in those genealogies. Why? Because not everybody is essential to the story of faith. Remember, your Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 is his, Jesus' story. And what we need to know to find Jesus, we know. But it was never God's intention to tell us everything, only what we need to know. Here's the reason why. In your comment that said it would have been much easier to follow Jesus if God told us everything. Um, well, it also wouldn't have required faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's what we want you to remember, is that trusting God based on what you know about Him is essential to a life pleasing the Lord. I had somebody not too long ago accuse me of being works-oriented. You're being legalistic. We have to please God. Well, Paul writes that we're to find out what pleases the Lord. We're to make that a, a pursuit in our lives. And to find out what pleases God should be the mission in our lives. To walk worthy of the name Christ. We're Christians to, to walk worthy of our calling, whatever that calling is. Those ought to be the desires of our heart. But even in the middle of God's perfect will, I'll use me as an example. I know I'm in the middle of God's will. I absolutely know it for sure. And Paul and I were able to rejoice in that. But still, in the middle of God's will, we're required to trust Jesus every day for the things we don't have, for the things that we need, with the people that we've grown to love so deeply. Remember, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And there's no promise of God that we can apprehend without faith. For those of us who are looking for absolute certainty, you're going to have to keep looking. We're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2 says. And the faith, not even our own faith, it's a gift of God. But we've got to exercise faith every single day. That's always been the way from the beginning that man and God could walk together. It's how God could call Abraham a friend. It's how God could reach down to you and to me and say, I love you. And I want you for my own. Those days when you don't feel very lovable, we still have to know by faith that he loves us. That he wants only the best for us. We'll understand that. Then we'll have everything that we need to know. So he didn't tell us everything because he didn't have to tell us everything. 340-9585. Here is a question from Rod. He says, uh, I know you believe that the Bible is our only source of authority, but what did the first century believers do when there was no Bible? What a great question, Rod. Um, they had a Bible, um, a source, God's Word, um, was passed on through prophets, prophetesses. Uh, they spoke the Word of God. Um, like we read the Word of God, they spoke the Word of God. Um, so they, they had the Word of God. It just hadn't been collected yet. It hadn't been put together yet. And one of the things that we know, Rod, they had, they had the original letters that were circulating around the churches. We know now that to be the Bible. They didn't know it, but they received it as the Word of God. They received it as the Word of God. So to them, it was sort of a de facto authority in their lives. But remember, God has never left his people without a word. In the past, Hebrews opens this way. In the past, God spoke to um, our forefathers through the prophets at various times and in various ways. But in these last days, 
the last days, Jesus' ascension to heaven until he returns to heaven. He's spoken to us in Son. And then God has miraculously, over centuries, preserved his word against all odds. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. So that's our authority. Well, in the same way, when a Dr. Luke would come into town or when a Peter would come into a town or a Barnabas would come into a town or a Philip or his daughters, people needed to know what to do. God spoke through them to the people. Now, we know the prophets were the foundation along with the apostles of the church. Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So they had God's word. They just didn't have it in writing. Now, of course, they had the Old Testament scrolls, but once the church branched out to Gentiles, uh, it would have been very difficult for Gentiles to understand those Old Testament scrolls, so they had the word. He never, ever leaves his people without his word. Jason wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, are Jesus' words in the Bible more authoritative than the others, uh, other authors' writings? Um, Jason, uh, no. Um, you know, there is a whole uh, segment of professing Christians, that, and, I, and I question whether they really are. Um, but they believe, they're called red-letter Christians, or they believe only in what Jesus said. We have to remember that it was man who compiled those things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but we automatically assume that that uh, Jesus' words carry more weight than Paul's words or than Peter's words. That's not true when it's God the Holy Spirit pushing the pen of men. God breathed. He pushed their pens. What they wrote was as much the authority of God as the words that you have in red letters in your Bible. There's no greater truth than just truth. When Jesus spoke the truth, Paul spoke the truth, Peter spoke the truth, all of our Bible authors spoke the truth. Why? Because it was God who cannot lie who was pushing their pins. So don't get caught in that trap. You know, even Jesus... When he was ready to leave, he told his disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear to hear right now. But when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will lead you into all truth. He will tell you everything that you need to know. And that's the Bible that we have. In the book of Acts, the explosion of the church right after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it says, I think it's verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, that the disciples clung to, that's the literal translation of the Greek word, the apostles' doctrine. They were devoted to, another translation says. But it's very, very strong, like super glue strong. Well, the Apostles' Doctrine is the Word of God. So the Apostles, their word, Jesus' word, same level of authority. Jason, thank you very much. Anonymous asks, what does your church do? Here's a tough question. What does your church do with the money it gets? I think most churches spend money on the wrong things. Are we a little cynical today, Anonymous? I think it, it sounds like we are. Um, let me tell you what our church does, and I can't speak for any other church, but, but I'd like to think that most churches spend their money on the things that God is leading them to spend on. So I hope that is clear. What our church does with our money is simple. God has made it clear to us that we're never to have a mortgage. We are renting our facility. We've been here for a very long time. We've outgrown it four or five times over. Um, but the Lord keeps us here because um, nobody's given us like a billion dollars yet. 
If somebody gives a billion dollars, we'll go out and build a building. We certainly need it desperately. Our church could be three or four times the size it is if we had space to put people. But that's not God's plan. That's got to be okay with us. So we don't have a building that we support. We have to pay bills. We've got to pay utilities, and we've got to pay people that are here on staff. So we do those things, and all of the people here work for very, very modest salaries, much less than they could make using the same talents in the world. So we spend our money on, on people. We also spend our money anonymously on a free school. We have a free K through 12 school. This is our 18th year. And when I say free, we charge for nothing, not for books, not for uniforms. Um, we charge for nothing. Um, and that costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money. We have um, a free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office, husband and wife doctor team. We have a pediatrician. We've got a physician's assistant. We've got a staff of nurses. It costs money to do those things, and yet somebody gets saved in our uh, our clinic nearly every day. That's what we do with our money. Why? Because that's what Jesus said to do with it. I think the short answer is every church ought to do what Jesus tells us to do. We have a home for women who've had a tough time or are trying to get their life together or who are in danger, physical danger, from people in their lives. Uh, that costs money. Um, anonymous, you, you call into this radio program. This radio program costs money. We have a, 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 a national, even international radio ministry. And all of that costs a lot of money. Nothing is free. And yet we do it without ever asking for money. So that's what our church does with the money. And we do it because we believe with all of our heart. That's what God has given us in terms of direction. Now, I don't think every church should do everything for free. I don't think every church should have a free school or a free doctor's office. That's what God told us. What every pastor ought to do and every board ought to do of churches in this country and the world is say, Jesus, this is your church. You're the head of the church. I'm your servant. What do you want this church to do? And, you know, a lot of them are going to have nice buildings. We 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 got a church in town with 10,000, 12,000 people that show up. Uh, every Sunday. And they need a bigger building than we've got. And they needed they needed to spend money on that place. By the way, I'm talking about Community Bible Church. And if anybody thinks they've spent too much money on their building, they need to go look at that building. They did a wonderful job constructing it and keeping it as basic and bare bones. It's not at all pretentious. They've done a really, really good job. So that's what we do with our money, and uh, I would I would caution you to keep your heart uh, from getting too cynical. Three, four, three. We've got a little bit over four minutes left. Here is a question from Deborah: Why is the only information about Jesus in the Bible? If he did everything the New Testament says he did, surely more historians would have written about him. Uh, Deborah, good question, but there are a couple of reasons why we don't have more uh, secular writing. Uh, writings about Jesus. Now, we do have some. We've got uh, um, uh, unsaved, unchristian witnesses. Josephus uh, notably talks about Jesus and the things that he did. Uh, there are other secular references to this Jew who claimed to be uh, risen from the dead, or his followers claimed that he was risen from the dead. Um, but he was a man reputed of, of mighty miracles and those kind of things. So we've got corroboration. But here's the thing to understand. Old books, and I'm talking ancient books, they, most of them didn't survive. And some we have only little pee, bits and pieces of, of manuscripts. And, you know, we, we can't put them all together and see what the whole story is. So we, we only have um, certain references. And, you know, uh, the Bible is probably the most well-attested um, manuscript uh, in the history of the world. Uh, more manuscripts and parts of manuscripts by far, thousands of them, by the way. Um, we don't have that much information about Shakespeare. In fact, we've got people who don't believe Shakespeare actually wrote Shakespeare. So old manuscripts didn't survive all that time. And 
what we've got to do is determine what if what the Bible says is true. And Deborah, there's plenty of evidence. There's plenty of evidence that if we're honest will lead us to conclude that everything that was said was absolutely true. I was watching a a, a YouTube video today, uh, Ravi Zacharias um, message he was giving and reading some of the comments that were coming in. And um, one of the critics was saying, well, this isn't a scientific or accurate approach at all. They're They're just trying to explain what they believe. They're not proving what they believe. Well, if there's enough evidence and you put it in front of somebody and they still won't look at it, there's nothing that we can do. So there's enough in terms of secular witness to the world of Jesus, to the to the work of Jesus. But let me finish this with this one statement. More lives have been changed for 2,000 years because of this man Jesus His impact on this world is leaps and bounds by far greater than impact any other man has ever had. More good has been done because of him than any other human ever. It's pretty strong evidence. You know, if I was a skeptic, I'd want to know why there's a billion or so people that believe this guy was God. So we got plenty of information. Dig in, find out. Let me suggest a simple book at first, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It's a paperback. You can get it anywhere. And if you're curious, I'll open the door to a little deeper scholarship. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. We had no phone calls today, which is unusual. Be careful out there. It's pouring here and we're told outside, so uh, be safe. Tonight, women's Bible study, men's Bible study at 7 o'clock. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.